right, all right. It's great to see you here this morning at uh, Grace Church, Medina East Campus. This beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. How crazy is it to think this time last week uh, we were scraping snow off of our cars and this week some of you turn on your air conditioning. So Northeast Ohio, there you go. It's, but it is great to have you here. Like Steve mentioned a minute ago, if you're a guest with us here today, if it's your first time at Grace Church, want to extend a very special welcome to you. Or maybe if you haven't been here in a while, welcome back. We're glad to have you back. And if you uh, haven't been here or if maybe you're a first-time guest, let me kind of catch you up to speed with what it is that we've been doing uh, here at our campus over the past several weeks. So we've been in this series together that we've been calling Jesus Come and See. And really kind of the big goal of this series, we said is this. We said the goal is that our hope is to replace our hand-me-down version of Jesus with a first-hand encounter with Jesus. That's what we've kind of been talking about. And what we meant by that is this, is we said that we live in a society where most of us, our first understanding and perception of Jesus is based off of a presentation that came from another person, right? And so for many of us, uh, we were handed down an understanding of Jesus from our parents, maybe from our religious background, maybe from our culture or from the media. And we said for better or for worse, we all kind of start with a hand-me-down version of Jesus. And while we said we all of us start there, we said that we can't stop there, that there comes a time when there is a need for us to come and see for ourselves, that there comes a time and there, there, there continues to be a need for us to come back and to kind of see Jesus, to look at what he said, to actually grapple with the claims that he made about himself, to look at his teaching, to look at his life, and to really think through those things kind of individually uh, ourselves. And so we said there's a need for us to do that. That's actually what we're doing in this series. In fact, one of the ways we've been explaining this series is we said this series is an invitation into an investigation. And so it's an invitation, regardless of where you might be in your faith journey, and we know that some of you follow Jesus and we know that some of you don't. And we said, regardless of where you are, this is an invitation for you to come and see Jesus for yourself. And so the way we've been doing this investigation is we've actually been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason we've been doing that, we said the Gospel of Matthew is one of the earliest first century eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus that we have in our possession. And so it's kind of as close as we can get to the life of Jesus. And so journeying through uh, the gospel of Matthew together. I encourage you, by the way, if you missed any of the previous talks in the series, you can always grab those, catch up, if uh, it'd be helpful to you on our website, our app, our podcast. All of those platforms are for free and they're for you. And we'd encourage you to take advantage of those. But today, as we continue in this investigation, as we continue to come and see Jesus to the gospel of Matthew, we're gonna pick it up in Matthew chapter 26. And so I wanna encourage you and invite you, if you have a Bible, if you please just grab that and join me. We're gonna go to Matthew chapter 26 here today. And so grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one with you, uh, feel free to make use of the Bibles under the chairs. Page 696 is where you're gonna find Matthew 26. And let me just say too, if you don't own a Bible, please just take one of ours. We, we'd love it if you had one, made it a gift from us to you. So Matthew 26 is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're finding Matthew chapter 26, uh, today, today, we are going to get into uh, what I think is a very important and a very relevant and quite honestly, a very controversial topic. And the topic that we're going to see that's going to be in this passage, I think that the topic that we're going to see some light shed on, really kind of is this question. And the question is this, um, what does Jesus teach about fighting? All right, so, so this is what we're going to be kind of looking at together. What does Jesus teach? What does Jesus say to those who follow him about fighting? Now, again, I think this is a really important question 
And it's also, like I said, it's deeply controversial. So one of the, one of the big questions in debates that followers of Jesus have is, should Christians fight? And if so, when and how? And, and when should that take place? In other words, one of the big questions that Christians ask is, when and how is it appropriate for a Christ follower to stand up for themselves? And is that okay? And if so, what is that to look like? How does a Christian fight? And like I said, I think that this question, this question is so significant and is so relevant, especially when you think about some of the radical things that Jesus taught. Because I think all of us know in this room, man, Jesus taught some pretty radical stuff. So this comes as no surprise to you. But Jesus said stuff like this, right? At the, at the core of Jesus' teachings, he would have said things like that we are to forgive. Those who follow him are to forgive that when someone hurts us or harms us, that we're supposed to respond with a posture of forgiveness. Jesus says stuff like this. Jesus says that we're to love our enemies. And so in Matthew, the, in the Gospel of Matthew earlier, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I tell you, love your enemy and pray for them. Very radical things that Jesus said. Jesus said this. He said that we're to turn the other cheek. If you're a follower of Jesus, someone strikes you on one cheek. Jesus says that you're to turn the other to them also. Jesus says things like we're to serve. We're to serve, right? And even if someone doesn't deserve to be served, that Christians are to take this posture of servanthood. And, he, and here's the thing. My guess is all of us know this. All of us know Jesus said these things. And my guess is that most of us in this room really like this. We like this. We look and we say, yeah, man, I love, I love this stuff that Jesus says. And man, these are such great principles. And what, what great like ethic morality that we see. These are a great way to live. This is a, these are things we should teach our kids. This is the way we should build a society is on the things that Jesus said. But here's the problem. The problem is that when you actually try to live these principles in real life, you know what I'm talking about? that all of a sudden you're going to find that you're going to have some follow-up questions. And so you're going to be like, okay, forgive. Yeah, beautiful. We should forgive. Love it. Great principle, Jesus. Great teaching. Until you actually have to forgive somebody. And it's actually playing out in real time in your life. All of a sudden you're going to have some follow-up questions. And you're going to say, well, now hold on a minute. Hold on. What exactly do we mean by forgiveness? And what are the parameters and the jurisdiction of forgiveness? How far are we actually supposed to take this? Right? Jesus says, love your enemies. You're like, that's great. What a beautiful, wonderful principle. That's a great thing until you find yourself in a position when you have a real enemy. And now you're asking, okay, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but like how far are we actually supposed to take this? Does there come a point when we've loved enough? And now we have to, you know, it's, it's a question. Um, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, if someone hits you, you're to turn to them the other cheek. Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry their stuff for you, they, they demand that you carry their stuff a mile, he says, go two, go an extra mile with them. And I think we're like, wow, yeah, Jesus, that's radical. What a great teaching. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves asking the question, but are we, like, supposed to do that literally? Like, like, for, like are you speaking hy hy hyperbolically here or for real? Are you saying, Jesus, that I need to subject myself to abuse? that I need to let myself be a doormat. Is that what you're talking about? Then you have serve. We should serve. And we're like, yeah, serve. That's a wonder. We've been actually talking about that quite a bit in this series, about the importance of serve. We're like, yeah, that's a great idea until someone treats you like a servant, until somebody demands that you serve them and expects that you serve them when they don't deserve it. And what do you do then? When is enough enough? And when do you do, to what extent are we to really do these things that Jesus 
says. I think, by the way, the tension that I'm trying to draw out, and hopefully that you're feeling, the tension, I think, is really well illustrated. There's a book that I read years ago. It's a book called Two Principles of Living by a guy named Watchman Nee. So Watchman Nee is an early 20th century Chinese church leader, and he wrote in his book this story about these two uh, brothers who were rice farmers in China. And so these two brothers were Christians, and they owned a rice farm. And I guess on a rice farm, there's a number of rice patties. So does anyone in the room know what a rice patty is? So I, I didn't. I, I had no idea what it was. So I Googled it. And let me just show you a picture. It's actually a, a really beautiful picture. But this is a picture of a rice farm in China. And you can see that it has cascading rice patties. So that's what a rice farm looks like. And so Watch Mini Nee tells a story about these two brothers who owned a rice farm and they had these rice patties. And they were in the middle of a mountain. And below them, they had another neighbor who also owned a rice farm. And so one of the things that Watch Mini talked about, because I, I know exactly nothing about rice farming, but apparently what he was saying in this book is that part of rice farming requires a high amount of irrigation. And so in order for rice to grow, you, you have to make sure your crops are properly hydrated. It takes a lot of water. And so to be a rice farmer, part of what that includes is that during the heat of the day, like the hottest part of the day when water evaporates, rice farmers would have to go and fill up giant barrels of water and re-irrigate their rice paddies. And so it's very laborious, very hard work. And so these two brothers were halfway up a mountain. So they'd have to walk down a mountain, come back up the mountain and irrigate their rice paddies. And so anyway, it's part of the job. Well, anyway, one night these brothers go to bed. They wake up the next day to find that the rice paddies are basically dry. And so they're confused, you know, perplexed by this. So they investigate a little bit. And here they find that their neighbor below them had dug an irrigation channel out and had drained all of the water from their fields into his own, essentially had stolen their water. And so naturally, I think just like any of us, they were really frustrated by this, but they also found themselves in a dilemma because they were followers of Jesus. And they said, man, we wanna follow Jesus, so how are we supposed to respond? How are we, are we supposed to confront this guy? Are we supposed to seek out authorities? Like, what are we supposed to do? And so what they decided to do was they said, well, we wanna love our neighbor, we wanna love our enemy, just like Jesus said. And so they decided that they were just going to endure the, the injustice. And so they pretended like nothing happened. And then the next day, when they got up, same thing happened again. This went on for a week. For a whole week, this guy kept stealing their water and stealing their water. And all of a sudden, they started to find themselves asking this question, how far are we supposed to take this? How far, when is it okay for us to stand up? And what does it mean? How, how do we fight back in a situation like this? They actually had friends, these, these two Christian brothers. They had Christian friends who said, you've loved enough, you've done enough, and now it's time to take matters into your own hands. And so what you need to do is you just stay up all night. You need to catch the guy in the act. And when you catch him, you need to apprehend him and you need to beat him to teach him a lesson, right? To which all of us who are Americans say, right, right? That's what we say. But they said, you know, we don't feel real great about that. But they just, here was the question they were asking. How far are we supposed to go with this? When have we loved and when have we endured enough? And when is it time to take matters into our own hands? When do we need to take action? And I think that story is very relevant to many of us in this room, not because anyone in here owns a rice paddy. I don't think any of you are rice farmers. But the reason I think that this story is so relevant to us is because I think for many of us, quite honestly, we might find ourselves in situations where we're asking the same question. When have I loved enough? When have I endured enough? When is it okay for me to stand up and act and take action? And what does it look like to fight? 
And some of you, that could be, I mean, my guess is if I was to ask you right now, can you think of a, of a, of a frustrating relationship in your life right now where you feel like someone has treated you unjustly, where you feel like someone is taking advantage of you, you feel like you're enduring hardship. My guess is that most of us in this room, when I ask you that question, you probably have names that come to your mind. And maybe for you, it's a coworker or an employee or a boss. And it's someone who you feel like is taking advantage of you or is mistreating you. Maybe they speak disrespectfully to you on an ongoing basis. Maybe they take credit where they don't deserve it. They're eager to steal the sale from you. And you're like, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to, to be a Christian, but like, when is enough enough? And when and how am I supposed to fight in a situation like this? Maybe for you, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a fellow student at the school that you go to. Maybe, maybe for you, it's a roommate and you feel like, you're being taken advantage of. They're not pulling their end of the, of, of the bargain. And you're like, how, how, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to take the high road. But honestly, like how far am I supposed to go with this? Maybe for you, you have an ex-spouse, ex-husband, ex-wife, and you swear that they've made it their full-time job to making your life a living hell. And they're doing a great job at it, right? And you're, and you're saying, man, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, but you're making it really hard. And how, and how far... Am I supposed to go with this? Maybe for you, it's a friend or it's someone that you went into business with and you feel betrayed by that person. Maybe for you, it's a neighbor who their dog continues to use your yard as its bathroom. And I'm just saying, I could paint for you every possible scenario of how this plays out. But my guess is I don't really need to. If I was just to ask you, can you think of somebody that you have frustration towards for these reasons, my guess is someone probably comes to your mind. I don't have people that come to my mind. And if you do, then I'm actually glad because that's what I wanna talk to you about here today because I think the passage that we're about to read, we're gonna see something about how and when does a follower of Jesus fight. And my hope and prayer is that today's conversation will be helpful to you. And my prayer is that maybe you would leave with a fresh vision of what it means to fight and what Jesus calls us to for those of us who follow him in the fight. So we're going to start in chapter, 20, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 47. And before we jump in, let me just give you a small amount of context. So the events that we're about to read about here is uh, the events of Jesus's betrayal and arrest. This all led up to his suffering and to his crucifixion. And so it all starts here. And so let's read this together, starting off in verse 47. The Bible says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Okay, so I want you to notice here in verse 47, the Bible tells us that now Judas, who is one of the 12, comes to betray Jesus. Now, my guess is, even if you're not a Bible person, you probably are familiar with Judas. I think everyone's familiar with Judas. Judas is the disciple who famously betrayed Jesus. He would have sold Jesus for 30 uh, pieces of silver. And so now the Bible says that Judas comes to betray Jesus. And notice, the Bible tells us that when Judas comes, that he came with him a large crowd. He brought a large crowd with him. Now, I thought this was so fascinating. I actually did not know this until I studied this this past week, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Uh, I was studying not only Matthew's account of this story, but also the other gospel's account of this story. And the gospel of John actually gives a little more clarity as to who is in this large crowd. I thought this was so fascinating. So in this crowd, you would have had some of the chief priests and some of the elders that would have been there. 
But in addition to that, John says that Judas would have brought with him a detachment of soldiers. And what's so cool about that is a detachment refers to a specific number of soldiers. And that number was, get this, 600. And so I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I imagine Jesus being arrested, I always imagine like a group of like 30 people show. I've ever like a life group like shows up to arrest Jesus. But that's like not what it is. The Bible says that who shows up is like 600 plus guys. I mean, and look at this. The Bible says that they had with them swords and clubs. So, and this is a mob, right? Like, what are they expecting is going to take place? Well, I'll tell you what they're expecting. They're expecting a war. They're expecting a revolution. They're expecting a rebellion, and they are prepared for it. And I'm just telling you, I just want you to get this scene in your mind. There is fight in the air. When you get 600-plus guys with swords and clubs in their hands, I'm just telling you, dumb things happen. There, there is a spirit that comes with that. There is an adrenaline that comes with that, right? All of a sudden, when you're reading this, you realize like Eye of the Tiger is playing in the background. Like fight is in the air. It is on like Donkey Kong. And I just want you to feel that, feel that, right? So this is what's going on. This whole crowd comes to arrest Jesus. And then look at verse 48. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And so notice the Bible tells us that Jesus was betrayed with a kiss from Judas. Now, just to help you out, I know in our society that might sound kind of strange, but back in this time, it was a very standard greeting for friends to kiss each other. I'm not saying we should bring it back. I'm just saying it's something that happened back then, all right? So, so not real weird to them that this would happen, but Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus replied to Judas, do what you came to do, my friend. Do what you came for. I always thought this was interesting, by the way. I don't know if Judas actually believed that he was pulling a fast one on Jesus. But it's clear that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. I don't know if Judas was naive enough to think that somehow he could trick Jesus. But Jesus knew precisely what was happening. And so he said to Judas, do what you've come to do. And the Bible says that with that, the men stepped forward, they seized Jesus, and they arrested him. And so now they take Jesus into custody. And watch what happens in verse 51. With that, after they arrested Jesus and they apprehended him, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, he drew it out, and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And so check this out. The Bible says that when they take Jesus into custody and when they arrest him, that one of Jesus' companions, one of his disciples, decides, I guess out of an act of passion and out of act of defense, he pulls out his sword and he decides that he's just going to go at it. And so apparently he swings at the guy who's closest. And so the guy he hits is the, the, the servant of the high priest. And the Bible says that when he swings this thing, he lobs off the ear of the servant's high priest. Of, of the high priest's servant in the scenario. Now, here's what I think is so interesting when you read this. The Gospel of Matthew never tells us, never names for us who this was. It just says it was one of Jesus' companions. It was one of Jesus' disciples who did this. But fascinatingly, the Gospel of John does tell us who did this. And um, my guess is, some of you already know because you've heard this story, but here's my second guess. Even if you don't know, you could probably guess who it was. Let me just ask you, who was notoriously the most impulsive, the most overreactionary, and the most passionate of the disciples? Who was that? It was Peter, right? So who did this? 
Peter did this. The Bible tells us Peter was the one who decided to grab his sword and swing it. And the Bible actually tells us the name of the servant, too. The name of the servant was Malchus. So if you're looking for baby names, there you go. Little, little Malky, right? Just bring him on and do that. So I've never, we've done a lot of child dedications here. I've never held a little Malchus before. And, uh, but that's, so, so he just, so apparently in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's packing heat. He's got a sword with him. And when they take Jesus and try to arrest him, Peter's like, nah, uh uh-uh. And he pulls the sword out and he starts to go to war with these guys and he chops off this guy's ear. Now, it's easy for us um, to poke fun at Peter. I think a lot of preachers, it's easy to poke fun. But let me just kind of defend this guy a little bit. So interestingly, Peter's the one who does this, but the Gospel of Luke tells us that all of the disciples had the same idea. Gospel of Luke tells us that all of the disciples had access to a sword and that when they saw the mob coming, that they turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, do we need to get on our swords right now? They all had the same idea. Peter just went first. That's all. And my thought is that Peter probably thought that what he was doing was the right thing. He probably thought, yeah, this this is the right thing. You're not taking my Jesus. No way. No way. I'm fighting for him. I'm going down. If he's going down, I'm going down. That's probably what Peter thought. And the other thing I think is interesting here, I kind of find this humorous. I don't know if it's supposed to be humorous, but I kind of find it funny. I think it's funny that he cuts off his ear. And the reason is because, (laughs) just think about this. I promise he wasn't going for his ear. So so Peter's either really bad with a sword, which is probably the case, or or this guy would have done. My guess he's probably trying to chop off his head, and it just didn't work out. So Peter's just like, you know, and goes to chop off a dude's ear. He probably thinks he's doing something great. But then look what Jesus says to him in response. Jesus actually turns to Peter and he rebukes him. He says, Peter, put your sword back in its place. Peter, Peter, put your sword back. It's interesting. The other gospels tell us that when, Pe- when Jesus would have said that to Peter, that he would have also would have healed the ear of Malchus at the same time. How cool is it that Jesus, in the midst of his arrest, does a spontaneous act of healing to those that are arresting him? Looks at Peter, he says, Peter, put the sword away, man. And then he says something really interesting to Peter. This is actually one of the most famous things that Jesus has ever said, very controversial thing. Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Some of your translations say, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It's a fascinating thing to say. It's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but I want you to notice the next thing Jesus says because this is so important. I don't want you to miss this. Check this out, verse 53. Jesus says to Peter and to the other disciples, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I love this. Now look look what Jesus says. Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And then he basically says, Peter, do you honestly think that I need your help right now? Do do you, Peter, do you honestly think that I am not without resource? Do you really believe that I'm not in control of what's happening right here, right now? Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call my father. And if I was to do that, he would send to me at my disposal more than 12, more than 12 legions of angels. And some of you are like, what is that even talking about? Well, a legion, just to help you out, a legion referred to a number, and it was 6,000, 6,000 soldiers. And so he says, if I wanted to, Peter, I'd call down, I could call on 72,000 angels right now. We'd get this job done. 
if I want to do that. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, really, Jesus? Is that the best, like, defense strategy? Angels, right? And I know because for some of you, when you think of an angel, you think of a naked baby with wings. And you're like, really, precious moments? Is that, like, the best defense strategy? And so let me just, let me help you out with that for a minute. Let me help you redefine what angels are capable of. So if you're like, how much damage could an angel do? How about this? Second, uh, in 2 Kings 19, the Bible tells us that one angel single-handedly slayed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So can angels do damage? Uh, yes. Yes, they can. How about 72,000? Yeah, quite a bit. And so what Jesus says here is he's saying, Peter, Peter, you really think that I'm out of control of this issue. Do you really think that I am without resource? I actually, um, like I told you, I was reading the different accounts of this in the Gospels. I actually really love the way the Gospel of John tells this same story. And he actually includes a detail that Matthew leaves out that I think makes the same point. I just want to show it to you. So this is, this is in the Gospel of John. Watch this. This is so cool to me. The mob comes to arrest Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, knowing that he was going to get arrested and beaten and crucified, he knew this. The Bible says that he went out to them. He went out to, Jesus didn't hide, he didn't run, he didn't go find a cave to tuck himself in when he knew that they were coming. He went out to them. And then he said, who is it that you want? So the mob is coming and Jesus knows that they're going to arrest him and kill him. And instead of hiding, he goes out to him. He goes, who are you guys looking for? Who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And he said, I am he. In other words, he says, I'm right here. I am very arrestable. Go ahead. I am right here. But look at this. I love what John says. He says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. <laughs> How crazy is that? What a crazy little detail. They're like, he's like, who are you guys looking for? Jesus, I am he. And the Bible says that with those three words, all of them. 600 plus fall flat on their back like dominoes. And you're like, man, what in the world is going on there? And then apparently they get back up again. And you know what they do after they get back up again? They arrest Jesus, which is so funny to me. Because what, it, what does that communicate? Here's what it communicates to us is who is actually in control here? The only reason those men got back up again is because Jesus let them. Listen, one of the big, let me just say this real quick. One of the big mistakes we can make when we read about Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and his sufferings and his crucifixion is we can, we can sometimes wrongly think that Jesus was a victim. I'm telling you, Jesus wasn't a victim. The only reason these guys got back up again is because Jesus let them. The only reason he was arrested is because he allowed it. The only reason they pushed a crown of thorns onto his head it's because he was able to endure it and not retaliate. The only reason they crucified him was because he let it take place. He's not a victim. And you see, I think, what, I think what Jesus is doing is he's looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, if I wanted to fight the way that they fight, we'd get this done quick. If I, if I just flexed even an ounce of my divine privilege, it would be a bloodbath. But that's not how we fight my kingdom is not a kingdom with a sword, so put it away. Put it away. And I think what we have in this passage is we actually have a juxtaposition of two very different kingdoms and two very different ways of fighting. On one hand, you have the kingdom of this world, the way the world fights. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of Jesus and how Jesus fights. And they're very different. 
Now, what are the differences? Well, I think it's probably pretty clear. In, in the world, we all know how it works because we live in the world. In the world, the way that we fight, the way it works in the world, is that if someone hurts you or someone wrongs you or someone comes after you or someone does something against you, our response is this. The way of the world is fight back. Fight back. And so if they hurt you, you hurt them. If they strike you, you strike them. If they, have a, if they come after you with a sword, you get a bigger sword. If they come after you with fists, you come with stronger fists, faster fists. If they hit below the belt, well, then, oh, oh you went there? Oh, you went there? Okay, we're going there. We're going there, right? We fight back. That's the way that we do it. We say, I'm going to take my energy. I'm going to take my strength. I'm going to take my creativity. I'm going to take my strategy. And I'm going to figure out how to fight you back. That's the way the world works. And you see this personified in Peter. Right, because what does Peter do? Peter sees the mob, and the mob has swords, and the mob has clubs. And he says, oh, they have swords. So they have swords. We need to use our swords. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to fight back. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way that we do it. What I find so interesting, by the way, is these are the same disciples who heard Jesus say, love your enemy, serve, forgive, and my guess is that these disciples would have loved those things that Jesus said. But when the mob showed up, you actually found out what they really believed. And basically what Peter said was, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you know, all that stuff you said about loving your enemies, that's all good to an extent. All that stuff about turning the other cheek, yeah, that's all nice to an extent. But at some point, Jesus, if you really want to get things done, if you really want things to change, everybody knows that if you really want to change things, you got to get out your sword. Because that's how it works in the real world. What's interesting is I think for many of us who follow Jesus, we actually take on the same position. We say, yeah, we should forgive. Yeah, we should love our enemy. Yeah, we should turn the other cheek. All that is very, very nice to an extent. But we all know that if you really want to change stuff, you got to take it in your own hands. And there comes a point when you got to stand up for yourself and you got to get out your sword. And what Jesus says is, no, I meant what I said. I meant, I meant it. In what I said. And Jesus displays for us a different kind of kingdom, and it's a kingdom without a sword. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking at this point in the conversation, because like I said, this is such a controversial topic that there's some of you that are hearing me, and you're saying, man, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I got you figured out. I see your agenda. I see where you're going, pa Pastor. I got you pegged, and I know what you are. I, I know what you're pushing. I know what you're propagating, and I know what you are. You're a hippie. That's what it is. I got you figured out. I've always, I've always been suspicious, but now I know for sure. You're a hippie because what you're talking about, Pastor, is good old-fashioned pacifism. You're talking about killing with kindness and rainbow-puking unicorn. Just, just hug them. Just hug them. That's what you're talking about. And what you're saying is I shouldn't fight back. I should just lay down and make myself a doormat. That's what you're talking about. And so let me just say, with all the respect in my heart, that's actually not at all what I think Jesus is saying here is that we should be pacifists. Now, I will say I have a great amount of respect if you are a pacifist and if you take that, that position, but that's not what I'm saying at all. I think that what Jesus is saying in this passage is much broader than that, and it's much bigger than that. I think that what Jesus is saying is not that Christians shouldn't fight. I think that what he's trying to show us is a different vision and a different definition of what it means to fight. Like, what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. Did you know that right before this passage where you see Peter fighting against the mob, 
right before this passage, you have another passage, and it's another fight. Did you notice that? I don't know if you noticed this. Look at your Bible. Just look down at your Bible for a minute. If you have Matthew, but just look down. Right before this fight passage, there is another fight passage. And by the way, every single gospel tells the story this way, and I think they do it on purpose. I think it's, I think it's purposeful that it shows it to, that the Bible spells it out this way. And so you see Peter fighting against the mob. Right before it, there's another fight scene. And what's happening in that fight scene? Well, let me tell you what's happening. Jesus is sweating, and he is bleeding, and he is agonizing, and he is exerting all of his effort and all of his energy, and he is fighting. And where is he fighting? In Gethsemane. And how is he fighting? Well, he's praying. He's praying. And the Bible says that there are drops of blood that are dropping from his face, that there is sweat, blood, and tears, that he is agonizing in prayer. It's really fascinating. Luke 22, you know what word it uses to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Let me show it to you. Agony. That's what Luke says. Agonizomai. And what it literally means is it means combat. It's war. It's the trembling, anxiety, tension, and effort produced by wrestling match or fight. Jesus was fighting. And he was fighting in prayer. And what was the content of his prayer? Do you guys remember? The Bible actually tells us. Here was the content of his prayer. He was fighting for obedience to God. Father, I don't want to do this. Not the cross. Please, if there's any other way, not that, not that, but your will be done, not mine, not mine. Give me the strength, give me the power to see it through. He was fighting for obedience. You know what else Jesus prayed for in the garden? The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, he was praying for his disciples, the very ones that were gonna betray him and leave him and abandon him. And he was praying for their good. And then he was praying for his enemies. And you know what? The Bible tells us in John, he prayed for us. He prayed for all of us. And he prayed for our good and for our sanctification and for our forgiveness. He prayed for us and he fought and he fought. And what's so interesting is that when you see Jesus in the garden and he is just pouring himself in agony, the Bible tells us that he continually is inviting his disciples to join him in this fight. Would you please come and pray with me? Would you please come and fight with me? Would you please join me? And the Bible says the disciples keep falling asleep. They just keep falling asleep. And they don't have the strength to fight like Jesus fought. Jesus fought all night by himself. And the next day he gets up and the mob comes and they have swords and they have clubs. And the Bible says Peter pulls out his sword. And Jesus says, Peter, wrong fight. You showed up to the wrong fight, man. You slept through the real fight. Because the real fight already took place. You see, I think what Jesus displays for us here is a very different way of fighting. The world says fight back. The world says they come at you, you reciprocate with equal and opposite strength and power. Jesus says, no, 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 we don't fight back. If you're a follower of Christ, we don't fight back. They hit you, you don't hit back. They sin against you, you don't sin back. They pull out a sword, you pull out a bigger sword. He says, what, what do we do? Here, for those of us who follow me, he says, no, no, we don't fight back. We fight for. It's a very different kind of fight. Because Jesus understands that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And we fight for, fight for what? Fight for obedience to the Father. Fight by saying, God, help me, not to, help me not to react to the person and what they're doing to me. Help me to respond to you no matter what they do to me. Help me be obedient to you. Fight for obedience. It's a fight, it's a fight for their heart, a fight for their good, a fight for their soul. That's what Jesus did. 
This is how Jesus fought in the garden. He fought, rather than fighting with fists, fighting back with fists, he fights for his enemies on his knees in prayer, praying for their good, praying that he would be able to be obedient to God and not react to what was about to happen. He chose to fight for. And here's what I believe with all of my heart. I believe that if you really want to change, if you want your heart to change and you want the world to change, the way to do that is to fight like Jesus fought. I was telling you earlier about that story. Uh, I, I want to tell you how it ends because I remember when I read this, I read this book several years ago and um, it's so funny. I don't remember anything about the book except for this story. And part is because of the ending, how powerful this story ends. So these brothers, these two brothers, uh, after a week of experiencing extreme injustice from their neighbor, they were trying to figure out what to do. So they decided they were going to seek advice from a leader in their church, a very wise, experienced Christian leader. So they went to the leader and they said, listen, we're trying to figure out what to do. We, we don't know. They told them about the scenario and they said, we're just trying to figure out when is enough enough? When have we loved enough? When have we forgiven enough? When have we endured enough? And when do we need to stand up for ourselves? And this very wise Christian leader, very, very wise man said to them, he said, um, if you're asking, have you loved enough? He said, then as it relates to the world, then yes, you have loved enough and probably more than enough. He said, but if you're asking, have you loved enough in the kingdom of Christ? He says, the answer is no, you haven't loved enough. He says, so here's what I want to challenge you to do. He said, I want to challenge you to pray for this man. And then he said, and then tomorrow I challenge you that when it comes time to fill your fields, first go fill his. And then after you're done filling his, go and fill your own and then see what happens. And so these two men were just desperate. So they said they were going to give it a try. So the next day, they got up a little earlier than usual and they went and they filled up their neighbor's field and then they went to fill their own. And they explained that something happened in their heart that was very unexplainable. They said that as they were filling their neighbor's heart, all of a sudden, all the hostility and bitterness and frustration that they felt began to become replaced with this inexplicable joy. And they explained how in that moment when they were filling that, their neighbor's field that they were reminded of what Christ had done for them, how Christ had loved his enemy, and now they had an opportunity to share uniquely in the fellowship of Christ like they hadn't before. And so they actually came back the next day and did it again. And they came back the third day and they did it again. And on the third day, the neighbor came out and he went and he met these two brothers and with tears in his eyes, he looked at them and he said, listen, I have been watching you for the past three days fill my fields and he says, and I have felt so convicted and so remorseful for what I've done to you. And he said, would you forgive me? And they said, well, of course, of course we forgive you. And then he said this, and this, I'll never forget, this so impacted me. He said to these two men, he said, listen, I know you guys are Christ followers. I know you're Christians. And if this is who Christ is, you must tell me more. And those two men went to tell this guy about the gospel and he turned his life to Jesus right there in that field, gave his life to Christ. Now, listen, the reason I tell you that story is not because I'm telling you that your story is going to end that way. I don't think it always ends that way. But the reason I tell you that is because, listen, I just want you to, would you just imagine with me for a minute, just imagine, if you're a follower of Christ, and I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, can you imagine with me for a minute, what would it look like if you caught a vision to fight like Jesus did? That rather than using all of your energy to fight back, what if you said, you know what, I want to be like, I want to fight for what could happen? What could, what could change in your own heart? What could change in that person? What could change as a result of that? Because I believe that's where real change happens. What would it look like if you replaced all the bitterness that you have towards another person 
all the bitterness? What if you replace that with prayer? What if you replaced all the, all the, the, the thoughts of hoping and wishing harm on that person, wishing that they would move to Pittsburgh and you know, in, inherit a cat or something terrible? Like, what if you took all of that, what, all that negative mental energy that you put, and what if you said, you know what? Every time I think about that person, that's my cue to pray for them. And rather than investing all my mental energy and wishing them harm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invest my energy in praying for their good. Can you imagine what that could do? in your heart, in their life. Can you imagine if you said, I'm gonna replace all my acts of vengeance and all my acts of passive aggressiveness with acts of service? Can you imagine what that might change? Because here's what I believe. I believe this is how you really change yourself and the world. I think this is how real change happens. Now, again, I know some of you, you listen to this and you're saying, man, that sounds so optimistic and so idealistic, but you're just so out of touch with reality. That's not how things change. But can I just ask you to consider this for a moment? Who has changed the most societies in the history of the world? Who has changed the most lives? Who has made the biggest impact in the history of humanity? And I think without a doubt, we all would answer, it's Jesus Christ. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, I don't know if you can argue that point. The fact that time itself is, is referenced in the birth of Jesus. When I, when I ask you what year it is and you say 2019, it's an indirect reference to Jesus and the impact that he's made on society. And let me ask you a question. Jesus had the biggest impact in the history of the world. And let me ask you a question. How many elections did he win? Yeah, none. Uh, how, many, how, many, how many armies did he field? How many battles has he won? How much money did he have? And he had nothing. And Jesus Christ changed the entire world and he did it without a sword. And here's all I'm saying is all of the kingdoms of this world say if you really wanna change things, it comes with political power, it comes with financial power, it comes with military power. And Jesus says, no, no, it happens without a sword. We fight different. And so I would charge you, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I would charge you to fight and fight well. I think you're born to fight. I think God put it in you to fight. I think he's designed you to fight. But I just wanna encourage you, man, show up to the right fight. Don't fight back, fight for, fight for. Fight for the relationship, fight for your marriage, fight for the hearts of your kids. What if we were a church that fought like Jesus? What if we were a church that didn't fight against our community and our society? What if we fought for them? What could that look like? What kind of change could be made in that scenario? I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and as they do, I wanna, I wanna just kind of close our time with one final question that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up in kind of in conclusion, and that's this. Where do I find the power? Where do we find the power to fight like this? Because my guess is there's probably some of you who are here and you're hearing this and you're saying, man, what you're talking about sounds so awesome and it sounds so right and it sounds so true, but I don't know if I can do that. And man, if you knew my situation and you know the person I'm thinking about, it's just, it's not that easy. It's way more complicated than what you're making it. And let me just say, I agree. I agree with you. I don't think that you or me or anyone in this room, we, that we have the power to do this on our own. I don't think that for a moment. I think that fighting like Jesus takes more strength. I think you have to be stronger. I think it takes more faith. I think it's harder. I think it's the harder fight. So where in the world are you gonna find the strength to do it? Well, let me tell you, I think it comes from two places. And the first one, I think you actually see from Peter. So Peter, the same guy who lobbed off the ear of Malchus, this is what he says later in the book of 1 Peter. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so where do we find the power to do this? Well, I think it's right here. You have to look to Jesus. You have to look to Jesus. The only way that you're ever gonna be able to love your enemy, the way that Jesus loved his enemies, is when you realize that you were his enemy and that Jesus Christ, rather than using his privilege, his divine privilege and his strength to fight against you and to fight back, he used his divine privilege and his divine strength to fight for you. I think it's only when we allow that reality to wash over us, when we realize that we were God's enemies because of our sin, and rather than fighting back, he fought for us. I think it's only then when you let that wash over you that that can transform you to live differently. That's the only way you're gonna find the power to do this. When you and I realize that the God that we serve is a God who died on a cross for his enemies, praying for his enemies, that's the only way you're gonna find the power to do this. The other thing I would say is this, is we look to Jesus, but then we also look to his example because look what Peter says. He says, when they, hurled, when they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now I would say, here's where you're gonna find the power. The power comes when you look at Jesus and you realize what he's done to you. And then also when you do like Jesus and you say, God, I trust you. I just trust you. I think one of the reasons why we feel the need to take up arms and to act and stand up for ourselves is because we don't actually believe that God is gonna do an adequate job of doing that for us. I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that we don't actually think God knows and God cares and that he is going to enact justice rightly. But here's the truth. Jesus shows us he does know and you can trust him even to the point of death. You can trust him. And this is where the power comes from. Let me just say this last thing. And, and we'll just take a moment and then we're done. But let me just tell you a couple of things I know and a couple of things I've been struggling with this past week. In, in preparing for today's talk, there's a couple of things that I know and there's a couple, couple of things I'm struggling with. Here's what I know. I know that this is a big conversation and that there are all ki- types of questions and all types of, of, of complicated you know, scenarios and considerations that come along with it. And unfortunately, we don't have time to field all of that. And I understand that. And so, and so it makes it kind of difficult to consolidate it to one talk. But here's what I also know. I also know, and this is just kind of give you a window into uh, a pastor's heart and what a pastor is thinking. This past week as I was preparing, I know that usually when I'm preparing a sermon or a message, that it's going to fall in one of three categories. And so whenever I'm preparing a message and I'm reading a passage and I'm preparing a sermon, it's usually one of three kinds of sermons. It's either number one, the kind that everyone wants to hear. I gotta tell you, those sermons, they're pretty fun to preach. Not gonna lie. It feels good to be up here when it's what everyone wants to hear. Number two, the second type of sermon is the kind that everyone needs to hear, but we don't necessarily know we need it. And those are informative and interesting to preach. There's a third category, and it's usually the kind that no one wants to hear. We need to hear, but no one wants to hear. And I am not naive enough to believe that this sermon doesn't fall in that third category. And listen, I just understand. I understand that there's some, there some of you in this room. I don't believe that you're just gonna walk out of this room and happily apply everything we said and put it into your life. I, I'm not that naive. I know that there are some of you that are hearing this and you're choking on it and that you've already dismissed everything that I said and you're already put all the justifications and reasons why your situation is different and nothing that I said applies to you. And I'm just saying, I just am aware of that. I don't know what to do with that, but I'm just aware of that. But I also know that there's some of you in this room and God is is, is, is softening your heart 
and he is allowing you to hear these things, and I would just hope that he gives you ears to hear it because I believe that that third category of message has the most potential for life change. I think it has the most potential for life change. And so I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna pray for you that God would allow that to sink in. Let me just say this last thing too, that if you are a person investigating Jesus, you might be asking, how do I know I can entrust myself to God? How do I know God is trustworthy? And I would say, I think the loudest declaration of God's trustworthiness is the cross. And for that, you have to come back next week because next week we're gonna look at the cross of Jesus Christ and its significance of what it means to you and what it means to me. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to know how to live well. I pray that you know us, teach us to know how to love well. And Jesus, I pray that you would teach us to know how to fight well. Would you redefine what it means to fight and help us to fight like you fought? And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.